the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Let's read this verse, these two verses together. So then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your precious word this morning. We thank you for this revelation of your infinite, eternal, holy mind to us. And as we consider these thoughts which come from you, dear God, we would ask that your spirit, the true teacher of your word, might instruct us that you might be pleased for your glory and your name's sake to open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things out of your word. And we give you all the praise and glory for doing so. Amen. Please be seated. We're continuing on with part two of who we are in Christ. We couldn't finish all of part two last week, and so we'll finish this week. We want to consider who we are in Christ. We are part of his building. We saw that already. We consi began considering how we are part of his body and then, Lord willing, next week, we will see how we are his bride. The church is his bride. Let's continue on with our study on how we are part of his body. We saw last week that we considered it in two key aspects, the form of his body and the function of his body. In case you weren't here or if you need a little bit of a reminder, we're going to review just very quickly, uh, just bring out some of the main points that we learned. I'm not going to go through the scriptures necessarily uh, in great detail to show why this is so, but just to remind us that Christ is the head of his body and the church is his body. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes very clearly, Christ also is the head of the church. He uses the head analogy. Everybody has a head. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Christ is also the head of the body, the church. So now we find out that the church and the body are synonymous terms in the New Testament scriptures. In Ephesians chapter 1, we read that God, in the context it's God the Father, put all things in subjection under Christ's feet 
and gave Christ as head over all things to the church, which is his body. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 30, we find out very clearly as Paul is speaking to all the saints, the rank and file and the leadership in the church, everyone, we are members of his body. Then we began to look at the function of his body. And we're going to continue that today. But just by review, every believer is a member of, the, of Christ's body, the universal church. We learned what that phrase, the universal church, means. The church was born on the day of Pentecost. In the gospel according to Matthew in chapter 16, Christ said, upon this rock I will build my church. It was yet future. The church did not exist. The church, the building, the body, the bride of Christ did not exist when Christ uttered those words. It's not an Old Testament entity. It was yet future when Christ uttered those words. It began on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit first came and indwelt the 120 in the upper room. The universal church began at that point, and it will continue until the bride of Christ is snatched up to meet the Lord in the air. That is the universal church. From the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 until the rapture of the church, it exists throughout this approximately 2,000 years and in all different places in the world. There are local expressions of this universal church, the local church, Grace Gospel Church being one expression of that universal church, a portion of the universal church. Every believer should function in the local church as Christ intends them to. Ephesians chapter 4 will drive that truth home again that we began to learn about last week, particularly from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And just like we learned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4 is going to drive home the same truth that our functioning within the local church, within this local expression of the body of Christ, should be based upon our spiritual gifting. Now, there were many more gifts mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12. In Ephesians 4, Paul is going to focus on certain gifts because he had a particular purpose in mind. And we'll examine that a little more fully as we get into Ephesians chapter 4 and how this passage relates to the functioning of his body. Christ provided the means for us to function in his body, the church. In verse 11, it says, and he gave. The word and connects verse 11 and what follows to what was stated previously began in verse 7 and to each one is given the measure of Christ's gift to each one not to certain ones but to each one the measure is given there's no one who is excluded from the measure of Christ's gift from the spoils of victory, of Christ's victory at the cross over sin and death and hell. There is no one who's excluded from that measure of Christ's gift. 
It says then in verse 8, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. There's a misunderstanding about this verse that grew up in the church over 150 years after the death of Christ. When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. The picture there is not that Christ descended into hell and led captives out of hell or out of Hades. That's not it at all. That is a quote from Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is a victory psalm that pictures an ancient ruler general who led his army into battle, captured the capital city, and then led the enemy captive. And he ascended on high. He mounted the steps. When he returned to his own capital, he mounted the steps of his dais up to his throne, and he sat on his throne. And from there, he gave gifts, the spoils of victory, to his generals and officers and anyone who served valiantly in the warfare against his enemy. He, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now this expression that he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? That's not Hades. That's not hell. That is a false teaching that grew up over 150 years after the death of Christ, after the completion of the New Testament, nearly 100 years after the completion of the New Testament is when this false teaching in its infancy started to emerge in ancient writings. The lower parts of the earth is nothing more than a Jewish expression for the grave. That's all it means. There's the surface of the earth, and then there's what's below the earth. The grave, that's all it is. But the ancient writers didn't understand that Jewish expression, and they built a false theology out of it. Christ ascended from the grave on the third day back to the right hand of his Father. And as this conquering hero this conquering ruler general, he gave gifts. It's just a beautiful picture that everyone in the ancient world would have understood because secular kings did this when they defeated their enemy. So Christ is pictured as the victor who gives the spoils of his victory. Unlike the ancient king, who gave the spoils of victory to those who fought valiantly, Christ gives the spoils of his victory to you and I who had no part in his victory on the cross. He did it all. He fought the good fight. And yet we didn't fight alongside of him. We didn't bear our own sins. We didn't defend him. Scripture says we were his enemies when he did this. Yet he gives to everyone who is part of his body. Every believer in Christ, he gives the spoils of victory. And he gave to the body of Christ. Christ is the one who gives us the means to function. 
in his body. In 1 Corinthians 12, it's attributed to God the Father, God appointed in the church. Here it's the Son. These are spiritual gifts or gifts of the Spirit, so it stands to reason the Holy Spirit is part of this. The entire triune Godhead, the entire Trinity is involved with how you and I function in the local church, this local expression of the body of Christ. Now, I want to bring something together here. We talked about the building. We're talking about the body. Lord willing, we'll talk about the bride. These are not separate concepts, particularly the building and the body. They're different analogies. They're different word pictures. But they are still tied together. It is the same individuals who are part of the building that are members in his body. And they're tied together just two chapters earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. He says this in verse 19, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Strangers and aliens are those who have never trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. Never believed the gospel, the biblical gospel of salvation. That Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross. That he was buried and raised again the third day, according to the scriptures. Christ bore the sins of the world in his body. He shed his precious blood and died to provide salvation for as many as who would believe in him. That is the biblical gospel, that we are saved by grace through faith. In fact, in chapter 2, you know how chapter 2 of Ephesians starts out? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 4, after painting the picture of us, being dead in our trespasses and sins, dancing to Satan's tune, the prince of the power of the air. In verse 4, begins with this marvelous word. The first two words, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. He saved us by grace, for, through faith, not by deeds which we have done. It's not according to our works, he'll go on to say in Ephesians chapter 2. So no longer are we dead in trespasses and sins. No longer are we strangers and aliens. We are now fellow citizens in God's household. And in this household, we are built upon a foundation. The scriptures are very clear as to what that foundation is. The apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone, the very first stone that is laid in the foundation of any ancient building. It must be perfectly square, a precise 90-degree angle. Otherwise, the foundation will not be square. I'm stressing this. Because there is a popular teaching that has grown over the last 20 years in particular that 
The local church needs apostles and prophets. After all, the first century church had apostles and prophets, did they not? Therefore, the church needs them now. But that flies in the face of Ephesians 2.20. Notice the apostles and prophets are part of the foundation. Once you lay a foundation, some of you are builders. You do construction. Once you lay the foundation, it's laid. One time, you lay one foundation. You don't lay a foundation again and again as you build up stories on the building, on a home or a commercial building. The foundation is laid once. In fact, if you feel that the foundation needs to be laid again and again and again, then the chief cornerstone needs to be laid again and again and again. Yet the scripture says Christ died once for all. Just once for all time. You can't have the foundation without the cornerstone. There's one cornerstone, one foundation. The apostles and prophets are part of that. What happens is people fail to understand that Paul in Ephesians is talking about the universal church, not the local church. The local church is an expression. Some of what is true of the universal church is true of the local church. Some. Paul the apostle, Peter the apostle, they were part of the universal church. Are they part of Grace Gospel Church? We don't see him sitting here. We wouldn't expect to. So you see, there's certain characteristics of the universal church that are not true of every local church. You and I are in this local church. We're not in a local church that's meeting in England at this time, this morning. When Christ gave apostles and prophets, he gave them to the universal church. Having given them to the universal church, he doesn't need to give them again and again. They're always given, just like he is always the cornerstone. These gifts of apostles and prophets are going to be mentioned in our key passage this morning, Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, not all, some as apostles, and some as prophets, not all, but some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Because of the way Paul phrased this, with some as repeated again and again, and he doesn't say some as pastors and some as teachers, the thought is very likely Paul intends this to be a compound gift, a combination of shepherding, because that's what pastor means. Literally, when you see pastor here, the Greek word is shepherd. It is the exact same word that Christ uses when he says, I am the good shepherd. I am, and when he's uh, spoken of as the great shepherd and the chief shepherd, you could translate that pastor as well. And it, in this passage, you could translate pastor as shepherds. According to Acts chapter 20, it is the elders of the local church. In fact, after three years in Ephesus, Paul is about to leave, and in verse 17, he calls for the elders of the church in Acts 20, 
and then he begins to give them his final address and charge to them. And he tells the elders of the church, pastor or shepherd the flock of God, amongst whom the Holy Spirit made you overseers or managers. It is the job of the elders. This he combines together pastors and teachers or shepherds and teachers. It is very likely here he's not just thinking about someone who functions solely as a teacher in the local church, but one who functions as an elder and teacher in the local church by combining them together. So you could make that a hyphenated term, pastor-teacher or shepherd-teacher. Either would be acceptable. Now, he only focuses on four key gifts here, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd-teachers or pastor-teachers. He gave these individuals as gifts to the church. It is not so much their spiritual gift that is in view in this verse, but that these individuals themselves are given as gifts to the church. Now, these, indiv these gifted individuals who are given as gifts have these spiritual gifts. We know from 1 Corinthians 12 that apostle and prophet and teacher are gifts. It's not just gifted individuals. It is the gifts themselves in view. In Romans 12, teacher or teaching is mentioned as a spiritual gift. So these gifted individuals have the gifts that identify them for the role that they were given to the local church. He gives these specific individuals to the church. He only focuses on four here. There's more mentioned in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and 1 Peter 4 just divides all the gifts up into two key aspects. Speaking gifts, like teaching, exhortation, it would have been prophecy, as well, uh, and serving gifts. Peter just divides them up into two big categories. But these are the four passages in the New Testament that deal with spiritual gifts. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, two twelves, and two fours. Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. So it's pretty easy to remember them. You can look them up and read them. As far as I'm concerned, and not just me, this is not a Johnsonism. This is most New Testament scholars would say that between these passages, we have a complete list of the spiritual gifts for the church. The question I like to ask when somebody says to me, do you really think this is a complete list? I say, yes, what did the Holy Spirit forget? Obviously, he didn't forget anything. These are the only gifts that the Holy Spirit has chose to have recorded in Scripture, found in these four passages. Well, sometimes we identify things as gifts that the New Testament doesn't. It's because in our common language, we might talk about someone being a gifted musician. But that's our secular terminology, not biblical terminology, not New Testament terminology. We need to distinguish between natural talents and abilities that we were born with. Sure, we might have developed them through some kind of music lessons or, or art, 
painting or whatever it happens to be, but distinguish between natural talents and abilities and spiritual gifts. How about someone with a natural talent or ability uh, in some musical aspect, whether it be vocal or instrumental or both? Perhaps their spiritual gift is serving. And they serve the church using a natural talent or ability. So Christ gave these specifically gifted individuals to the church. Now, he gave it for a purpose. It wasn't so these individuals could glorify themselves. Do you realize Paul and Peter never use apostle as a title? We love titles. We love to give out titles. We like to have a title in front of our name and a bunch of letters, our degrees after our name. But Paul and Peter never did that. They never said, the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter. No, Paul, and Peter says the same thing, Paul, Peter, and Apostle. Not the Apostle, and Apostle. It's never used as a title. It's used to indicate the role that they played in the church based on the gift that the, Jesus Christ had given to them. Christ gave gifted individuals and their gifts to the church for a purpose. It was not to exalt themselves. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers for a particular purpose, for equipping the saints for the work of service. This is why he gave spiritual gifts, to equip the entire church. And this is why he focuses on these particular gifts and not all the other gifts that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. Because these gifts have as their goal the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Many of the other gifts are actually enablements to perform those services in the local church. Here he equipped the saints, not so that they could say, oh, look, look at what I'm able to do. Look at what I've learned. Look at how I've been blessed. No, it's so that they can serve in the local church. That's the whole purpose. The equipping's not merely for the individual alone, but for the church, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. To what end? To what goal? To the building up of the body of Christ. That is the ultimate goal of serving, utilizing one's spiritual gift or spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ, not to exalt oneself, but to build up the local church, the local expression of the body of Christ. Each local church then contributing to the building up of the universal church. That is the purpose. It's for the benefit of the church. Let us never be like the false prophet Balaam, who used his gift of prophecy to benefit himself. He's spoken evil of three times in the New Testament because of what he did, because of what he exalted himself regarding to receive compensation 
and praise and reputation for the use of his prophetic gift. Here, it's never to exalt ourselves. It's always for the building up of the body of Christ. These spiritual gifts, all of them that are mentioned in Scripture, in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, how long are these spiritual gifts necessary? Do we ever, as an individual believer or as a local church, outgrow the need for spiritual gifts? In verse 13, he tells us that there is a point in time when spiritual gifts won't be necessary. He says, until, until, so there will come a point in time, until we all, not just some of us, all in the universal church, and what's true there would be true of us, in the local church, until we all attain to something. What is that something? until we all attain to two things, the unity of the faith and a full knowledge of the Son of God. That's how long these gifts are necessary, until we attain to the unity of the faith and a full, a complete, and exact knowledge of the Son of God. Spiritual gifts are necessary for unity in the local church and for a full knowledge of Jesus Christ. What results from this unity and full knowledge as spiritual gifts are exercised? There is an intent, there is a goal in the exercise of spiritual gifts. It's to a mature man until we all attain to a mature man. Spiritual maturity is the desired end and goal of the exercise of spiritual gifts outworking itself in a unity of the faith, a unity amongst believers in the church, and a full knowledge of Jesus Christ. Maturity is what results. If someone is bringing about division or schism in the local church, whether it's actually happened or through their their backbiting, their slander, their sowing discord amongst the brethren, they are not a mature believer. doesn't matter how they're functioning in the local church. If they do not have a full knowledge of the Son of God, they are not a mature believer. It's not my opinion. It's exactly what Paul says. You can see it on the slide from verse 13. Maturity only results if there is unity in the faith and a full knowledge of Jesus Christ. Do we get to define what maturity looks like? I'll define it to look like me, therefore I'm mature. No, no, we don't get to do that. You don't get to define it, I don't get to define it. Scripture defined it. To a mature man, to the measure of the stature, now, when you think measure the stature, don't think me. Think Gilson, okay? This is tall. This, this is huge. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Spiritual gifts are going to be needed for as long as the church is on the earth. None of us will attain to the complete and total 
fullness of Christ while we're on this earth. The church will never outgrow its need for spiritual gifts and the proper use and exercise of spiritual gifts. The measure of maturity is the fullness of Christ. That is complete and total maturity. When one possesses the fullness of Christ, we will only do that when we see him. In 1 John chapter 3, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Only when he takes his bride to be with himself, when he catches us up, when he raptures or snatches up his church, and we behold him face to face in all his glory, then will be transformed into the fullness of Christ. Maturity has a practical result. It's not just a pin that we put on. I'm spiritually mature. It's, not, it's nothing like that at all. It's not to show off to others. There is a practical result. He says, until we all attain to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, as a result, what is the practical result of spiritual maturity? Not perfect, complete, total. We're not going to have that until we see Christ face to face. But beginning to have the unity of the faith and the full knowledge of the Son of God as we start to develop maturity. Even the, even the use of the word maturity is a word picture. We think about the human growing up from infancy a toddler, a preschooler, a child, a youth, a teenager, someone in their 20s. At each stage, there is, there's either immaturity or at some point, hopefully in the teenage years, there is the commencement of some aspects of what we would call emotional maturity. Hopefully by their 20s, they possess a fair degree of maturity. But we mature throughout our life. Hopefully I'm more mature now in my late 60s than I was when I was 40. Maturity has a practical result. And Paul is going to tell us exactly what it is. As a result, he expresses it first negatively. What is not true of maturity? And that's immaturity, childishness. As a result of having maturity, we are no longer to be children. So maturity, spiritual maturity, is, is the opposite of being a spiritual child. What are the characteristics of a spiritual child? He tells us they're tossed here and there by waves. By the trials and circumstances of life, they're tossed back and forth by the waves, the storms of life. But they're also carried about by every wind of doctrine, of false teaching, by the trickery of men, and by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Three things they're carried about by. Every wind of doctrine, trickery of men, and craftiness and deceitful scheming. The mature believer in Christ knows true doctrine from false doctrine is not carried away by trickery, by 
slick-sounding terminology that you'll often hear on Christian radio or Christian television. The mature believer is settled in their faith, both circumstantially, so they're not tossed here and there by waves, and also doctrinally, so they're not carried about by every wind of doctrine. On the other side of the coin, what should characterize the mature believer? That that maturity that results from the proper exercise of spiritual gifts in the local church. We should be speaking the truth in love. The words that come out of our mouth should be true, but it's not enough that they simply be true, but that they be loving. The truth spoken in love, not speaking the truth with the intent to hurt or cause damage, but out of love. And we are to grow up into all aspects, not just some aspects. A mature believer is a well-rounded believer. It's not just a focused maturity. Oh, I have a full knowledge of the Son of God. Oh, I, 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 a deep understanding of Scripture. But my character, my morals are awful. No, it's all aspects. It's not just knowledge. It's love. It's practice. It's serving. It's everything that the New Testament Scriptures say that should be true of the believer. We speak the truth in love, and we are growing up in all aspects. That is the practical result of maturity. That is what is seen in the mature believer. The entire spiritual growth process began with Christ, and it ends with Christ. Paul writes, grow up in all aspects into him. The purpose of spiritual growth is to grow closer to the head, Jesus Christ. To grow up into all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. And he says, from whom the whole body, the from whom, the gifts that he gave, and he gave some as. Recall how verse 11 started. This is the from whom. He's looking back to how he began his teaching. Christ gave those gifts so that we might grow up into him. It's full circle. It begins with Christ giving the gifts, and then as the gifts are used properly in spiritual maturity, Results, we grow in all aspects into him. Spiritual growth begins and ends with Christ. We don't exercise spiritual gifts in our own strength. We do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. We rely upon the Holy Spirit. We do it to glorify God in Christ, not to draw attention to ourselves. Christ has gifted the body so that it can function properly. In verse 16, Paul writes, From whom? From Christ, the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. You know what the joints do in the body, right? They allow movement between different bones. If your elbow's dislocated, you're not going to be able to bend Flex your forearm. That's not working properly. It causes pain 
It, it's, it's not functioning right. But Christ intended the whole body to be fitted and held together by every joint according to the proper working of each individual part. For this local church, any local church to function properly, every individual part should be functioning in the way Christ intended it to function. For my body to function properly, my knee joints should be functioning properly. My elbows, my shoulders, my, my, uh, my knuckles for my fingers, wrists, ankles, the whole thing. Any joint needs to be functioning properly for the whole body to work properly. The same analogy is true in the local church. For the local church to function properly, every member, every part of the body needs to be functioning like Jesus Christ intended it to function. To the degree that some are not functioning, some are like dislocated, out of joint, not articulating, not moving properly, not doing what Christ wants them to do, to that degree, the local church is not going to be working together in its most ideal fashion. The local church is not just the elders. It's not just the ministry leads. It's not just the individuals who, who shepherd the church, who teach God's word. It, the local church is not just the people who greet us, not just the deacons, not just our security ministry or those who care for and teach the children. Every single individual has a function. Doesn't mean you have to be serving in the church 10 hours a week. You might just serve once a month. Christ gave you spiritual gifts for a reason to bring Him glory, to build the whole church up. Every single one who has chosen to fellowship here at Grace Gospel Church, you have a vital role. Your role is as important as the role of any ministry lead as important as my role, the role of any elder. You're no less important. We learned that last week in 1 Corinthians 12. Your role is vital. It is necessary. That was the term that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 12. And only as every one of us fulfills that role do we have the proper working of each and every individual part. What is the end result that Christ intends from the proper use of spiritual gifts? Simply to cause the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. In love. They'll know we are Christians by our love. By this, Jesus Christ said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. God and Christ gave spiritual gifts so that we might exercise love towards one another and be a testimony to the world. So this morning, what are you thinking? Are you thinking biblically about who you are in Christ? Today, will you begin to see yourself as a vital part of Christ's body, a vital part of this local church. And today, 
Would you please consider how you might begin to serve Christ's body as God intends you to? Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for the power of your word, how we thank you for the clarity of it. We thank you that the Holy Spirit has allowed us to understand the meaning of this passage. And we pray that you would help us to grow through the exercise of our gifts and that we might be characterized by some degree of spiritual maturity, that we might speak the truth in love to one another and that we might grow up in all aspects into you, Lord Jesus, our living head. So we thank you for all that you have done for us at the cross. We thank you for bestowing upon each and every one of us the spoils of your victory and giving us the means to function within your body and giving us also the power, your Holy Spirit, We pray, dear God, that you might convict each one of us of our need to be serving you in this local church so that we might bring you great honor and glory by functioning like you intended us to. Strengthen us in this endeavor, we pray for your name's sake. 